0: Hi humans, I'm Buenos from Kinematic Podcast, and today we sit down with Alfredo Lopez, who's a senior marketing specialist holding a master's behavioral psychology degree from University of Chicago. We also cover various topics from traumas, addiction, raising children, and we dive into Alfredo's unorthodox work journey and how he became a psychedelic advocate and the benefits it had on him. Hey, one more thing before we go. If you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do because it helps out with the whole YouTube algorithm of growing the channel. And the most important part is you're going to hear a lot of innovative people. We're going to talk about hemp, cannabis, uh, sustainability, tech, and pretty much everything in between. So hopefully, I'll see you on the other side. Catch you later. Uh, Alfredo, thanks for coming on. And uh, it's kind of funny how we met. It was LinkedIn again, which is most of the amazing people that I've connected recently was through LinkedIn. Um, and it was through psychedelics. Uh, and I explored your profile, and you're just one of those interesting people that kind of uh, looks like an orthodox. Uh, what is the right word? Uh, polymath when it comes to everything from your background to what you're doing now, and kind of moving into psychedelics. So uh, thanks for coming on, man.
1: I appreciate that. Uh, thanks for the invite. I'm excited, obviously, to you know dive into this conversation on psychedelics and psychology, and you know, and any other topics that that touches on. You know, so thanks for the invite, uh, I think it's a cool opportunity and hopefully we can provide some value here.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I try to kind of plan this podcast out before and I'm like, what should I start off with? Because there's a few different phases. Obviously, the main topic will be about psychedelics because that's how we kind of, that was the touch point that we started interacting about. Uh, but let's kind of go back, what is it, 2009 and 2010. Uh, University of Chicago psychology can you talk a little bit about your background how you got started and then maybe phase over into psychedelics definitely so I would say that
1: my my career at university was a little bit unorthodox what I mean by that is that I remember being in the graduate program and literally every single person I met in the graduate program you could tell that they put in a lot of thought into why they were there what i'm what i mean is that they had a roadmap i don't know if they had guides or somebody that was kind of mentoring them but they're like no i'm here as a stepping stone towards you know b or i'm here just as uh the latest step in my effort to get towards you know this destination and when i say that my experience was a little more unorthodox was that i literally just loved to learn <laughs> i wasn't there for like a serious reason of like i want to land this you know, this great job or I want to, you know, I'm using this as a springboard to, to land here or there. I literally was there because I was interested in psychology and obviously University of Chicago offered a great opportunity for that. I did receive a full scholarship and so I, I figured it was an opportunity that I
0: couldn't uh, pass up. And interrupt, but for people that don't know, University of Chicago, I think out of tuition is like, what, 60, 70,000?
1: I'm sure with inflation figured in by now, it's, it's probably a lot more than, than what it was 10 years ago. So that's uh, pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty uh, crazy that you got into it. Anyways, keep going. Sure. So, so I remember people being very taken aback when I shared that, you know, because as I mentioned, people had a, what I considered a far more serious mindset. And I want to distinguish between seriousness and sincerity. I think you mm-hmm. could do something and be serious, and, and it's kind of tense and you know and, and I think you can just be sincere in your efforts, sincere in your pursuits, and still generate, you know, uh, really great results. And so I, I think I was more approaching it from a point of view of sincerity. I was sincerely interested in learning. I was sincerely interested in meeting great people, being around great ideas and really just trying to absorb as much as that as possible. And so for me, it wasn't like, oh no, this is just, and so what I, I think actually that contributed to my success because a lot of the people, my colleagues at the time were great people, insanely smart, which I've always liked, but they just seemed to be very strung out. You know, they seem to be just wound a little too tight. I, mean, I remember making all kinds of invitations. Hey, guys, let's go hang out. Hey, let's go get a drink. You know, hey, let's go for a hike. And everyone was like, oh, no, that's that's absolutely out of the question. You know, I need to... What
0: they, then what did they do? What did the regular
1: psychologists do usually? Well, these people were buried in the library stacks. Really? Wow. They uh, were buried in the material. And obviously, I did that as well. It's not like I was neglecting my duties. But the way I saw it is if you are nimble enough and flexible enough and uh, in your mind, then there's an opportunity to do many things, a lot more than usually than we think that, that we're able to do. And so you know, I was able to, of course, uh, execute my, my, uh, my duties, my, my schoolwork, my research, you know, meet with, with people. So part of the requirement was that we had to spend 250 hours meeting. In my case, I was meeting with people who were struggling with things like addiction, Things like personality disorders, depression, suicide. Uh, Some of my other colleagues, obviously, perhaps may have had a slightly different focus, but that was the requirement. And because I was just having so much fun, because I didn't take it so seriously, you know, I was able to, of course, uh, fulfill all those responsibilities, but
0: also make a little time to enjoy the the beautiful city of Chicago. Uh, Was there any... uh backlash from your family or anything not having like a linear path by any chance uh, just having like the end goal or anything at the end of school like here like you said in the beginning just getting this this job this is where I'm going versus being like true to yourself personality like seeking that truth and uh, being open to uh, many options I guess. I definitely experienced zero
1: pushback from my family uh, and I'll share that part of the reason for that
0: is that i uh, so I'm, I'm mexican born uh, that's why i asked because you're a foreigner like myself and for there's a there's a whole stereotype of foreigner parents are a little bit uh, crazy especially if you move to the united states they see as the united states an opportunity of like the linear path like opportunity is great like you know and get a job and do this and that like four years of school everything has to be fixed so that's why i kind of asked so wh- what's
1: curious about my background uh, is that we grew up dirt poor You know, so we, I migrated to this country, to the United States when I was three years old, Uh, I was actually smuggled into this country via what we called, uh, what is sometimes called a coyote. A coyote is a code word for somebody that, you know, has the capacity or the setup to be able to bring people from, in this case, Mexico over to the United States. And so when I say that we grew up dirt poor, what I'm trying to communicate is that there was very little expectation, as far as my family is concerned. I'm virtually Elon Musk, which is to say that I, I've so far exceeded any expectations at all. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm very different from anyone in my family, in the sense that you know I pursued an education, I pursued uh, you know ambitious projects. I wanted to be part of that ecosystem, and they would have been just as happy. If I had just, upon graduating high school, got married and had kids and, and worked at you know, Target, <laughs> you know, as far as they were concerned, that would have been great. Um, and so very different from anyone in my family, as I mentioned, and it's interesting you mentioned the polymath thing. That's something I've heard from many other people, but it's, it's, not, it's not anything I ever really considered of myself, but certainly my interests are broad. Yeah. do
0: you feel like um there was even though you were interested and in seeking after i mean specializing after psychology i mean if they're specializing after seeking i guess psychology master's degree and going through that do you feel like it's more of uh it's more of like the new like psychology is your glasses the way you see the world through because after i've experienced that like a little bit later in life i dropped out of uh, college twice. I tried to do psychology first, then I went into like tech and business. And then I I experienced uh, a boot camp with uh, UX design. And that's where it was kind of like the stepping stone for me is, wow, this this gives me an opportunity to see almost everything and kind of work with different products, physical, digital, and meet with people. And uh, when you go on like user journeys and coffee interviews, it's really nice. So was that maybe a kind of lens? Uh, Psychology was like a lens to see the world through?
1: It certainly can be. It's hard for me to say if that's the lens through which I approached it, but it's certainly true what you say that we all have a kind of a reality tunnel. We all have a kind of a filter through which we experience the world. Uh, For better or worse, right? Because filters, while they can enhance what we're experiencing, there's certainly an, an embedded limitation to it, of course. You know, I would describe my, the reason I pursued psychology for me is actually quite clear, is really, if I'm honest, it was an attempt, an effort to heal myself. It wasn't, at that point, I wasn't so too much concerned with providing solutions for others or driving value for others or helping others. Uh, of course, I always had that as, uh, as you know, as kind of one of my my uh, guiding tools, but really it was an effort to to heal myself you know i from a very early age i experienced a uh, quite a bit of violence in in my home but also in my neighborhood uh, i grew up in south central los angeles which has a lot of infamy and and you don't notice to what degree things are distorted until you're quite a bit older you know when you're a kid doesn't matter what your circumstances are that is normal for you That is, you you think well this is normal because this is what i experience regularly at home and in my environment or i I turn and i see my neighbors and they all look like me act like me talk like me so this must be what normality is and it's not until you're able to leave that cocoon where you're like well hold on a second i grew up all kinds of fucked up (laughs) right you know and it was at that point that i realized well i actually need quite a bit of help myself I don't even know where to start, who to turn to. And so what I decided was, well, uh, I was full of determination and a burning desire to, to figure that out for myself. That's what led me to pursue psychology. Uh, of course, I'd heard from many people, many friends that I, I, I had this ability to, to really sit with people, listen to them, try and understand them, and, and provide new perspectives and viewpoints from which they, they themselves may May heal as well, so that perhaps may have been innate. Uh, but as I mentioned, my pursuit in psychology was initially an effort to to try and address some of the issues that I felt I carried with me.
0: That's a very interesting point. Do you feel like? I'm not sure if this is gonna be biased, but do you feel like that maybe the career path is sort of like this, to find how to heal yourself, or is it the path like to seek something? more like you seek psychology to heal yourself maybe deeply unconsciously people are trying to seek and fix their issues and I guess their path through I guess for me it was designed because I was always seeking to see something to have a I guess a position or to have a job or something to do to have a lens on and to have like some sort of skill and give me like purpose, because like I said, I could do almost everything work with physical digital products. But do you feel like some people unconsciously actually seek to heal themselves through when they get older, when uh, they get into college and they completely forget about that? Or is that maybe something that takes a little bit of time to uncover? Because it's a very interesting point because there's, you know, like the whole balance between the job and the purpose and like the life, it kind of almost like makes sense that you figured it out yourself and, on this journey, you've acquired a skill that not only helps yourself, but you're helping other people as well.
1: Yeah, no, that's a fascinating question. I do think they go together. And, and you're right to suspect that there is an unconscious element there. I do think that whether consciously or unconsciously, the way that our life unfolds is, is for a particular reason. You know, whether you jump into business or engineering or medicine, it really doesn't matter. Uh, obviously, we all come with different, uh, we all, I, I believe as human beings, we all have the same ingredients, but they're dialed at completely different levels. And so that accounts for why, you know, people will pursue what they pursue, whether in this case, psychology or sports, etc. But yes, I do believe that subconsciously or at some level, we are forever seeking to connect with that greatest thing in us, that, that inner self that, that we suspect but are not always really aware of. I think in my case, I became aware of it quite young, possibly just due to accidents. And by accident, I mean that given the just the tempestuous upbringing that I had, as I mentioned you know going through domestic violence, going through violence in my upbringing. I mean, I was eight years old and fighting on the streets regularly. And so when you have those type of experiences, when you experience suffering to that degree, and and if you are open to it, because suffering will either take you over or if you are able to uh, distill the the lessons from it, it can completely transform your life in 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 a powerful and beneficial way. I think that's sort of what happened to me is I was exposed at a very young age to tremendous suffering and it made me question things like, well, what is my role in this world? Why am I here? You know, what is life about really? And that generated a certain awareness within myself, which ended up being a kind of a guiding light for me. I understand that not, that's not everyone's experience, uh, but sooner or later we will face suffering in some way. And it's really in those moments uh, I believe actually those are transformative moments when when we have the right mindset, when we're open to them. Uh, of course, most of us make a life out of running away from suffering, but really that's there's a reason why suffering exists, and I believe it, it holds many of the answers that as individuals we're looking for if we're able to sit with it. So I think that's what made it a, a little bit more of a, let's call it conscious effort for me, but yeah, I do believe that for the, for people who have not had those insights or have you know, made a habit out of running away from that, it does become operative at a much more unconscious level.
0: Um, I wanted to track back a little bit about the, uh, you talked a lot about meeting people and you had uh, 250 hours, I think, or something to do. Uh, And you mentioned you had to meet with addicts and uh, I got into psychedelics early on just through friends and having eclectic friends, very creative. Uh, But also I went through uh, two years of uh, drug addiction and in one day of LSD experience it just completely switched over. Like I I just lost something off my shoulders and and it was just magical to me. But um, I wanted to talk about uh, the people that you've met and like some of the uh, research that you've done in the 250 hours especially when it comes to addicts, like what have you learned from them? And like, what did you see and like the initial expectations were and what did you saw after? And analyzing them through your uh, psychological frameworks. Sure,
1: so uh, I'll speak from personal experience because I haven't kept uh, myself updated on all the latest uh, developments in that area and clinical psychology or all of that. But in my experience, I, I always considered addiction to be, and whatever the addiction was, right? We can be addicted to love, to work, to sex. The easiest addiction we, that comes to mind, of course, is to drugs of all, of all kinds, but we can be addicted to relationships. We can be addicted to attention. We can be addicted to uh, adrenaline-fueled experiences. And so what I always, One of the things that I always came back to was that addiction for me was an emotional imbalance, really an emotional disease. It's very easy for people to imagine a disease physically because the body is always verifiable. You say, where is my hand? Well, there it is. But you say, well, where is this fear that I'm experiencing and nobody can locate it, right? Or you say, where is that wayward thought that I had and nobody can locate it? that's what makes it very difficult to identify some of these things. And so I considered addiction to be certainly an emotional imbalance, uh, an emotional dis-ease and, you know, not to get too Freudian, but I certainly was able to trace it back to experiences in youth, uh, experiences in our developmental upbringing, you know, experiences that while they're human experiences, even if they're of the suffering kind of the traumatic kind, It's not the experience itself that does us harm. It's our inability to properly assimilate the experience and take from it what it has to offer us. And so I believe that trauma, let's say, it can either completely overwhelm you and really for the rest of your life if if one is not able to assimilate well, what is the message here? What is the significance of this occurrence? Uh, so that's one thing. That's the external event, you know, whatever the situation may have been. But if we are able to assimilate the experience, if we are able to understand that, well, well hold on a second. Yes, this hurts. But there's also a kind of a silent voice behind it that's it's trying to tell me something. And it's trying to tell me something that may actually be fundamental to who I am. And so often the answers to that we're looking for, they're hidden in the deepest and darkest places. They're not gonna be readily available. So what I discovered with, with, with all manner of addictions was that there was something or there was an imprint early on that was not properly assimilated and understood or digested. And therefore, you, are, you now become possessed with the energy that that brought you, which is mostly gonna be a negative energy. And so uh, I'll describe uh, just a, gen- a generic example, hopefully to provide a little more clarity. You know, I once had a girlfriend, I won't name her, <laughs> uh, several years ago and lovely girl, extremely talented and very quickly identified that she seemed to need me a lot more than than perhaps you know than what i needed of her she constantly needed of my attention she constantly needed of my validation to the point where and and to a degree that's normal but in in her case it it just went above and beyond and and i started to feel a little bit suffocated uh, very independent total total free spirit. And so when somebody is trying to put me in a cage, even if it's a golden cage, uh, you know, it was a bit uncomfortable. And so rather than just, you know, push back or, or, or fight the issue, I tried to get her to understand, Hey, look, I'm noticing this behavior. So I didn't, I never wanted to make it about her, the person, because her, the person, I, you know, I really liked her, liked her a lot. I said, look, I notice you have this behavior. Have you ever noticed that in yourself?" And I was fortunate that she was receptive to this type of questioning, because if you ask people these type of questions, you will notice resistance immediately spring up uh, in the average person. Uh, In her case, she was like, well, funny you mention it. Other, you know, some of her past relationships, past partners had mentioned something similar. And I think she somewhere in her mind, she had bookmarked that as, hey, this might be something I need to look at at some point. And then knowing her a little bit about her background and having met her parents, I I quickly saw that uh, in her parents, her mother was the dominant one. Uh, there's always a dominant figure and, and a more passive or receptive figure in in parents, whether it's the whether it's the father or the mother, but it's always going to be one or the other who is the more dominant driving force. In her case, it was the mother who was a working professional and and sounds like she was perhaps a workaholic. And so it seemed like she often neglected, you know, this person who was my girlfriend at the time. Uh, I'm sure. As a child, she found herself, like like all of us do, having many needs and wanting a little bit of attention and some validation and maybe somebody to cheer us on or help us you know, get out of uh, any issues we might be facing. And her mother was very stern, kind of cold, calculating, analytical type person. I think her strength wasn't necessarily to be nurturing or accommodating or, and so, you can imagine for what it must be like for a little girl growing up and you're looking at your your uh, parental figures and going, man, well, I am not getting what I'm needing here. And so what do we do as, as human beings? Well, we need to fulfill those needs somehow. So then that's when we start to look into our peers, right? That's when we start to look outward because if, if we're not getting our needs met at home, we're going to find them in the peer group. And that's when we can start to get into trouble <laughs> because, you know, our peers are often just as lost as we are. And so they may not always be you know the best guidance. And so, you know, after discussing that with her, you know, over several months, you know, she was able to kind of come to a, a moment of truth within herself where she was like, good God, I had never noticed to what degree I had carried this pain with me, this pain of neglect, of abandonment. Uh, Not saying that that's what happened, but that's certainly how it was interpreted. That's how it was felt uh, on her end. And funny enough, she had such a breakthrough. (laughs) I say funny enough because it came at my expense, but. She had such a breakthrough and had a kind of a fundamental moment of seeing into herself that soon after, she was almost a different person. Uh, the way she carried herself, the way she spoke. And then I, th- I think she quickly dispensed with me because she was like, wait, now that I uh, I feel a little bit more whole, I actually don't need to be hanging <laughs> around this guy too much anymore. So uh, that's just a quick illustration of how these things play out. I don't want to make it seem like if you know, I've mastered all these things or, or, or the, as if it's as simple as that. Obviously, we're, we're complicated creatures, human beings. You know, we're, we're made up of all of these various networks uh, within the body, within our emotions, uh, within our minds. And it's very difficult to make sense out of a machine that has so many uh, components, both physical and otherwise.
0: Do you think that, I mean, especially with the chaos going on Right now, do you think everything starts at home from from childhood usually i do I do believe that
1: I believe that um well, I suspect wouldn't say I believe, but I suspect that uh as human beings, we come into this world with a certain hardware already and we're all familiar with software. We're all constantly downloading new apps and new programs. Uh, that's what our environment generally will uh, imprint on us. And of course, the immediate environment is always going to be the home. Uh, whatever that looks like for you. you know, It could be single parent home. It could be you know, you, you're lucky enough to have your mother and father. Uh, sometimes, I hate to say it, but you, you may be unlucky enough to have your mother and father, depending on what the dynamic is there at home, right? And so I do think it starts at home because you come already with a certain hardware, with certain talents. Uh, But beyond that, from day one, you're already being told who you are. You know, you are this, you know, you're immediately slapped on with all of these uh, various labels of nationality, of gender, of... and, And some of these are stretched further back into the family itself, right? You you will have families where generations upon generations of lawyers, right? Why is that? Well, it's either these guys are just sensational, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, uh, debaters and and presenters, and you know, or it's that that imprint is so strong. Oftentimes, sometimes you know, forced uh, upon the individual that it's almost as if their their free will has been removed from them and now they've now been put on this path. I do think it starts at home. And the reality is that for many of us, independent of where we grow up, the family dynamic is not always harmonious, right? Life happens. You know, parents were often overwhelmed. I'm a parent myself. Uh, I I really struggled probably the first couple of years of being a, a dad. I had no idea what I was doing completely out of my depth. But I was filled with that burning desire to do things right. And had I not had that, I think I'd be in some deep waters right now. But I do believe that I remember something that my grandfather used to say, uh, who had kind of a shamanic element to him. He said, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. And the reason I bring that up is because I just had a post about dishes today. (laughs) Yeah, the temptation is always to look out to go out and solve the world's problems, to go out and solve my friend's problems, the neighbor's problems. But another way to think of it starts at home is by saying it starts with me. You are the only home that you ever carry with you 24 seven. Independent of the location, you're at home in yourself. And if you have a disordered mind, if your emotions are wayward, or perhaps too volatile, or perhaps some of us are struggling with physical ailments of all kinds, then things are not right at home. My suggestion to people has always been, hey, look, it's it's venerable, it's honorable to go out and try to help, to go out and try to provoke change, positive change in the world. But that is a later step. You, you have to really start with yourself and, and try to address that to the best of your capacity. If you need help, that's fine, help is available. But take care of that first, because otherwise you're only giving what you have. It's impossible to give something that you don't have. And I see so many people fall into this trap, this temptation of, well, my friend is struggling, so I'm gonna go help, or, or so-and-so is struggling, so I'm gonna go help them. Okay, sure, but if you yourself are not uh, in order, what kind of results do you think you're going to generate? You you can only give what you have. And if you have disorder at home within yourself, then guess what? That's going to be reflected in your outcomes.
0: I wanted to ask you, was there any studies done? I'm fascinated by you and just uh, different personalities. (laughs) I actually have a few books behind me. Um, Was there any studies done in... I guess, the spectrum, how the kid changes versus if the kid is living with the single parent dad versus a mom, which is different because I believe in like the different energies, or I, I read about them and it's kind of interesting. Is there proof or any research that if a kid is growing up, if a boy is growing up with a mother, single mother all of his life, it's, gonna, it's more likely to turn out this or he has these type of tendencies versus maybe a girl's growing up with the father, she has these tendencies and vice versa? So
1: off the top of my head, I can comfortably say that I'm sure there are studies like that out there. I'm not familiar with any off the top of my head. What I will say is that independent of growing up with a mother or a father, there there is such thing as energy. And it's important to have both uh, what we can call a masculine energy and a feminine energy. Uh, in an ideal setting you want to have both and you want because you can't grow it's not fair to a person and to grow up with only a masculine influence you know that might lead to the next Genghis Khan right and it's not fair or or right to grow up only with a feminine energy because I don't know that person may end up being a hippie I'm not sure but it's really important life is a dance between the two you know the reality is that every single person has masculine and feminine uh capacities in men typically though of course there are exceptions the the accent of that is on their masculine energy and in women typically though of course there are exceptions the accent of that you know their center of gravity is in the feminine we're all aware of the people who with whom it's the opposite, right? Yeah. There are such things as effeminate men and and masculine masculine women, and but I, I always think of it in terms of the energy behind it. And so, a woman who is masculine, let's say, or can do, and assuming she's balanced and and a good person, can do just as great a job uh, as as a man who is masculine. Um, so I think so long as you have those two energies at home and, and they're harmonious and working together, I mean, that's the ideal setting. Unfortunately, it happens very rarely.
0: What can a person do, especially, I guess, uh, a younger adult or just a younger person that grew up with a single parent and was, uh, unconscious of the missing energy. Like you've talked this story about your girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, um, is there some approaches that you've seen that had positive results on them or is there a path where they could start to, I guess, going inwards a little bit more? Definitely. There, there has to be, that has to be the focus
1: and that has to be the exclusive focus for a very long time. We, what we need is really a lot more moments of seeing. We, we often believe though incorrectly that we know exactly who we are. And the reality is actually dramatically different. I mean, it doesn't even belong in the same room, it's, it's of a different order altogether. Having said that, we, we are not skilled enough usually to be able to see ourselves as we are. What we usually experience is the image of ourselves. Now, often that's an image that we, again, falsely believe that we have cultivated for ourselves, but really there's been a lot of contributions into that image. Your environment, your parents, uh, if there was a religious upbringing, that's an influence, the political landscape at the time, you know, obviously your family history, uh, the particular friends that you associate with. All of that goes into forming this image, uh, especially when you're younger, whatever adult uh, authority figures you have around have a large play in that. You know, we're all familiar with this notion of little kid gets into trouble and you know, the mother or the father may come around and say, hey Peter, that's not like you. Well, if it wasn't like them, they wouldn't behave in that way. Of course, they have some type of energy inside of them that makes them behave in such a way but now here comes the the authority figure who tries to you know put things in nice little boxes. You're not like that, you're like this, right? You're such a nice little boy, Peter, why are you behaving like this? Well, the influence there, the imprint there is that I as the parent, because I don't wanna struggle, I want this kid to be a nice little boy, right? Now that may be useful for the parent, uh, at least in the short term, but there are dramatic uh, negative effects uh, potentially uh, for the child uh, because at such an early age, we are not conscious enough yet to make the determination of whether this is something useful or valuable or whether it's
0: something to be discarded
1: entirely.
0: Is there a, I'm not sure if it's the right question to ask, is there a different, I guess, chemistry in your body uh, when or different changes versus, I guess, I don't know if you call it natural. If you grow up with two parents and everything's fine, you get the both energies versus one. Is there a chemi- like chemical change in your body growing up, like for girls or boys, uh, and carry those out, or is that? I, well, I want to
1: say yes. You know, we're all aware of, of the the general chemicals in the body for such thing as happiness right well fair amount of uh, serotonin fair amount of dopamine uh you know these things i I would imagine that in a person that grows up in a well-balanced way their serotonin receptors are probably firing on all cylinders Uh, whereas for the rest of us they may sputter here and there and occasionally work just fine and occasionally not so much I, i don't feel qualified enough to speak as to the chemistry of the body, but at a high level, I, I would suspect that absolutely there there is a significant uh, and very notable difference in, in the biological chemistry of, of a person who grows up, again, assuming things are all harmonious and well
0: balanced versus how the rest of us grow up, right? <laughs> It was a very interesting first 40 minutes. I wanted to kind of transition, start going into uh, your personal like work, marketing, and then obviously psychedelics. But um, what a question that I wanted to ask, like, what are the something people misunderstand about psychologists or specifically maybe you and your friends? That's an interesting
1: question. I would say a common misperception of, of a psychologist is that they read minds. <laughs> You know, I I certainly don't feel like I'm a mind reader. If anything, it's probably closer to the truth to say that a psychologist is really more of a, either an energy reader or a body reader. What I mean by a body reader is that think of your body as the physical instrument of your subconscious. And so while a person may lie, your body will not lie. You know, so while a person may, you know, distort the truth, your body will never distort the truth. You know, so uh, I I'm very aware of things like nonverbal cues, body language, the way a person expresses themselves, the way they stand, uh, their manner of dress, their you know outward uh, dress style. All of these things. Uh, are languages for those who are, you know, skilled and fluent in, that, in those languages. And so people are, I like to say that people are open books and we really are, you know, you meet somebody and instantly you'll have at least an impression that while it doesn't capture the whole person, of course, uh, is at least enough of a cliff notes to, to give you a sense of, of what they're about. You know, we have such a thing as a gut instinct, right? But what is the gut instinct? Well, it's a series of networks that collect around, you know, the solar plexus, uh, which we now know is another brain in the body. Uh, You know, traditionally we consider the brain as, you know, that that sponge we got up here in between the ears. Uh, But we've now identified that there are actually other brains in the body. One of them is in the gut. Uh, It's actually the gut that produces the most amount of serotonin in the body. And so I think that's a misperception commonly of, of psychologists that we're psychic, or that we're mind readers, it's really it's like, no, I, I don't need to be psychic because you are telling me uh, through all these nonverbal cues, through, all, through, all the, through this body language, through the way you express yourself, you're telling me quite a bit about yourself, which I know to be true. So I, again, I said, people may lie,
0: but your body will not lie. Um another question actually uh kind of came in. You talked about uh being a father and not knowing what to do, but you're trying to be you're trying to do your best. What does the best or the ideal self mean to you and how do you, I guess, approach it?
1: So by the best, I mean that I want to try and generate as many uh positive outcomes as possible. Uh now I don't deceive myself. So I the aim is never perfection. That's fool's gold. So, so I don't beat myself up when I make mistakes and I do make mistakes. Uh, so, so that's important to have because a lot of people they'll make a mistake, they'll beat themselves up for a year, you know? Uh, that is neither profitable for yourself nor for your children. If they see that, oh wow, dad makes a mistake and he's beating himself up. That means that when I make a mistake, the natural behavior here is for me to beat myself up. And you see how these things begin. So instead it's, it's far easier and more powerful to simply admit to your mistake and apologize to your children. Hey, you know how I lost my temper back there? That's totally my fault. I was upset because now I see that I didn't know how to properly deal with the situation. I was frustrated at that. It's a frustration that it was really about myself. And unfortunately I took it out on you and that's wrong. So I want you to know that I'm sorry and one of the things that I can do moving forward is to be more aware of that so that we can avoid that. A child, or whatever their intellectual capacity may be, will understand. I promise you, they will understand because they'll sense the energy from which that's coming. If it's sincere, right? If it's one of these, you know, oh, I fucked up, you know, my bad, then I don't know how sincere that is, right? <laughs> So, if, if, but if we can be sincere, then something translates over, something carries over to the child uh, where they'll see like, oh, okay. Oh, well, even my parents make mistakes. That must mean that it's okay if I make mistakes as well. You know, and so I think having that, that attitude to generate as many positive outcomes as possible, knowing that there'll be some negative outcomes here and there, but to try and limit those, I think that that's, that's the
0: way I approach it. Um, I don't know how to, I guess, ask the question. Do you think kids, because of their intellectual capacity, are more keen uh, to the awareness of, like, your verbal cues and your tone of the voice? And when you said, like, they they will understand if you tell them in a sincere way. Obviously, that has to do a lot with your body language. If you're uptight, your shoulders are back and all that stuff that goes in. Do you think they're a little bit more aware because of the intellectual capacity, meaning, like, able to communicate verbally clearly they pick up on those cues a little bit more than, uh, I guess, the verbal. Absolutely.
1: Uh, Kids are masters of this, uh, generally more so than adults, because adults, we already come with uh, all the excess baggage that we all carry. Kids, you know, maybe they don't have so much baggage yet, but (laughs) they're starting their collection. But the way they initially experience the world, you're right, because you know their cognitive abilities, as far as I know, don't really start to develop significantly until around age seven. So you're talking about seven years where the way they're experiencing the world is through, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of nonverbal cues. And so parents, if you're listening to this, uh, take note of this because this will be very important. What you say to your kids is of far less value than how you say it. Doesn't matter what, we all have the experience as parents of, good God, I've told this kid a million times. Well, how about you say it once from your heart? How about you sit down with them like a person and open your heart and be humble and sincere and say it once? And I promise you, if you can do that, you'll get the result that you're looking for. But that's not what we do, right? We, we beat them up. Uh, I don't mean that physically, but you know, I mean emotionally or psychologically. Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? I've told you a million times. What's wrong with, right? All these uh, uh, frustrations that the ch- all, the ch- all you're really telling the child is, oh, I'm a bad kid. Oh, I'm dumb. I don't understand. Oh, you know, uh, why, can't, why can't I do this? What's wrong with me? terrible message. And in fact, the exact opposite of what most of us parents are trying to communicate. Uh, You know, I don't know to what extent you can place accountability on the parent. Obviously, they should be accountable. But if you consider that parent as a child, and if they never got this education, then, you know, how, how can we expect that, you know, suddenly they've figured out the solutions when the way they've been brought up and the way they've been programmed, you know, has not allowed them to to solve for those issues,
0: how do parents can do better when it comes to i guess comparing or i guess showing or displaying uh a path of progress versus like in terms of you know you got to be here your neighbor your or your cousin is doing good in English, but you're not, and like this this whole comparative of like aspect when you're growing up, everything is compared to somebody else versus like. Hey, i know you're not good in english or you're i know you're not good in this specific subject can we do something to make up for this or can we do something is there anything that our parents should do a little bit different when it when it comes to that approach when it comes to i guess what's what's the right word giving them rewards and sort of like reward and not comparing it to their grades or anything that or to their especially i think the biggest thing for me personally was comparing somebody to my mom's friends are, you know, family members. Like, hey, this, this is this guy is doing this, but you're not doing that.
1: I think it's okay to compare internally.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What I mean by that is, in your own mind, uh, it's it's almost a temptation to compare, right? It's it's almost like we can't help it. Uh, now, I don't think that there's too much trouble with that if we do it internally. Which is what I mean by that is, if I within my own mind say. Well, that's interesting you know my son appears to struggle in this area but his cousin is excelling uh, of course the the opposite is is true and will always be true that your child is exceptional in some areas where those same other children are not and so it's important to keep that in mind now i think there could be value in that if we have done internally now the minute we externalize that and communicate that to the child or with other people, I think that's a problem. I think there's no real benefit in that. You know, the benefit can come if you, within your own self, are able to address you know some of these concerns or then, okay, you can compare and say, oh, okay, well, well, actually it turns out, I see that his cousin has had a lot more support in this area. So perhaps if we provide a little more support, you know, it could it could bring our child up to speed. But it's never good and it's never advisable to compare externally, which is to say, to tell the, the child, why aren't you like them? Or why can't you be more like the neighbor boy, right? Or the neighbor girl. Um, it's a huge injustice to the child because the, the message there is you are not enough. And until you are at that level, like the neighbor boy, like the neighbor girl, you know, there's something the matter with you. Uh, again, that's a horrible message to send. And most parents, I'm sure would be horrified, uh, at the even at the thought. Again, these things are happening at an unconscious level. Most of us are not conscious or aware that this is what we're doing, but this is in fact what is what is most commonly happening.
0: Um, what do you think about this new age of uh, the new therapy apps and uh, I guess the virtual therapists and all that just having it at your hand is do you see that as a positive aspect is that I, I've, I mean I've heard bad and good reviews about those type of services and I especially in times like these I know that I've uh, saw a few statistics depression and anxiety and everything's been up obviously due to the circumstances.
1: I think that it can be a valuable starting point. If somebody is starting from zero, from scratch mm-hmm. and because so many of us have already have these embedded behaviors with technology. Uh, the reality is most of us are addicted to technology. And so there's already a series of behaviors that come with that, uh, where we can be uh, consistently engage in these, you know, behavioral loop- loops. Uh, and so that can be valuable in the beginning if you're starting from zero where you just need to create the habit of spending time with yourself uh in this case let's say through an app however there will come a point and if a person is sincere and they've started with a with an app or with a with technology there will come a point where you will have to discard it because any medium that you use shapes the actual outcomes uh that you generate so it you can't really separate the two and as far as i know there's there's a long history of you know meditation or spiritual practices you know in historical periods in 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 areas of the world where there was no such technology right there wasn't there were no apps of the day or whatever the case may be and oftentimes the results were a lot better almost as a direct result of not having those competing influences or distractions. and So I think it's valuable for somebody, matter of fact, I've only ever recommended things like that for somebody that I know is starting from scratch, because I want them to get a sense of uh, what this is really about, what this line of questioning uh, and exploration is really about. And if their easiest entry point is through technology, I think that's okay. Mm Uh, for any serious or sincere person there will come a point where you will need to discard it and be like no ultimately technology is just yet another crutch that we hold on to the goal here is that you need to be um, at peace uh, with yourself by yourself without any other crutches if you need crutches it's a sign that there's still perhaps an element of fear there, uh, an element
0: of insincerity with ourselves. One more question before we transition about kids. Um, I noticed and I've read about the phenomena when somebody has a kid, sort of the intent of life and purpose changes where you're almost doing everything for the kid's future versus almost like yourself. Has that happened to you by any chance? Have you seen like a different uh, I guess just different, uh, experience after having a kid, do you like, you just flipped over or something or. It
1: definitely sends you for a tailspin. <laughs> um, you know, I can think of, uh, I can't think of too many, you know, transformative experiences because it's so organic, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not like taking a substance or a medicine, you know, it's an organic process to, you know, to give birth to a child or to have a child. And suddenly you're you're faced with the prospect of, oh wow, all of my conditioning up to this point has in no way prepared me for how to how to bring up another person. You know, I have a hard enough time doing that with myself, <laughs> let alone you know, guiding somebody for the rest of their life, right? And so It has to be a balance uh, and it's something that people have to identify for themselves. The temptation will always be to, you know, pour everything out of yourself into your child and be there uh, unconditionally and at all times. But if you're doing that at the expense of yourself, then that also sends the wrong message because sooner or later you will be so completely depleted. Whether physically or psychologically, that you won't be able to generate good outcomes from that uh, position. If you are depleted, we all know what this is like in the workplace. Can you execute your best work when you're exhausted? Absolutely not. When you had a sleepless night, when you're having problems at home, whatever the issue may be, when you know when you're behind on your bills, you cannot be at your best. You cannot operate at your best, and so. It's not advisable to want to give everything to your children at the expense of yourself because sooner or later you'll be so depleted that all your outcomes will be negative because you're working operating from that point.
0: is there is there at least like a i guess like a microfilter when you when you make decisions today after having a child in the back of your head, maybe do you kind of compare like is this good for the future of the child or not or because you're a psychologist and you're a little bit more open, you understand those versus a regular person. Um, Do you happen to notice those as well? I do try to plant seeds for the
1: future, but Mm -hmm. what I'll share is that I'm not too focused on the future. I I try to be more focused in the moment. Mm -hmm. Because If in the moment you can plant a good seed, then you can rest assured that at some point in the future, that seed will will blossom. Um, But to try and... uh, confront situations and and if you're thinking if your mentation is already focused on the future then my sense is that you're doing injustice to the moment uh, because Mm. you split yourself you split yourself into being partly in the moment and partly in some imaginary future that only you can look into (laughs) and some of that will filter in uh into the outcome
0: all right, let's transition into uh, your personal life uh, so when it comes to actually working. Uh, you took a drastic change. So you started a marketing agency straight out of psychology uh, school. That's completely opposite of you taking a nine to five position weekly and doing uh, behavioral psychology. Uh, what made you go in that route? And uh, what did uh, your friends, especially close to you, uh, tell you?
1: Yeah, so this is the funny part. We're, we're going back to how so much of what I've done has been rather unorthodox. So right, right after graduate school, this was summer of 2010, I moved back to Los Angeles, uh, where, where my family is, and I actually jumped into education. For a long time, ever since I was young, I had this uh, kind of imprint in my mind that I wanted to be a teacher, I wanted to be in education, and was fortunate enough to do that, only to quickly identify that, oh, hold on a second. This actually is not the right fit for me. I don't feel uh, comfortable here. Frankly, what I did least was teach. And most of what the job was, was you know, managing all forms of politics and administrative issues. And, and I'm a very unorthodox uh, thinker and player because I, I feel like I'm able to identify unorthodox connections that, that I feel are, are based on first principles rather than you know, what the trend of the day may be. And, and so that, that's always the way I've operated. I've never been afraid to break rules or bend rules or discard the rules in the interest of generating a good outcome. You know, the Rules are, are there for a reason, and obviously um, they should be respected up to the degree that they're valuable and when they're not valuable, then I think it's okay to dispense with them. Very quick example of that, let's say we all know the value of a stop sign, right? The stop sign is designed for us to have greater awareness, situational awareness of where we're at. Are are there any uh, people, uh, any animals around, any other cars? Okay, I'm free to go, okay, now I can move forward. But if you're in the middle of a desert and there's nobody around you for 800 miles, really don't see the value of throwing up a stop sign there and actually stopping, right? I mean, unless you're stopping for the birds or the clouds, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I've always enjoyed playing with the rules, uh, bending them when I think that it's valuable, not just for the sake of it, not to be some thrill seeker or some contrarian. There has to be a practical basis for you know how we operate. Now, of course, it's easy to say that, but when you're in an environment of work, Uh, The powers that be don't usually like uh, when when somebody is, you know, experimenting or tinkering with different models, different, even if you're generating great outcomes, a lot of times there will be resistance because, oh, no, 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 that's not how we do it. Well, yes, but we're generating great outcomes here. Isn't that the goal here? Well, yes, but, right, and then we all know where that ends up. So I, I quickly realized I didn't want to do that. I left education after about a couple years. And then I remember one evening with my wife, who naturally was a little bit nervous because I was out of a job and you know she was, you know, pressing me a little bit for some answers, for some comfort, for some security. And and I remember saying entirely spontaneously and almost flippantly, don't worry, babe, because I'm going into marketing, <laughs> not knowing even what marketing was. Uh, not having any experience in marketing, not having any connections or background in it. Uh, But somehow, uh, perhaps my subconscious spoke for me uh, in that moment, but that's what came out of my mouth. And then from that moment forward, I was possessed with this burning desire of like, well, if I said that, it's because that's what I'm going to do. And so I started very humbly. Actually, I had an internship you know, where where I was worked worked on marketing strategy, I uh, worked on social media emails, a little bit of PR, I quickly realized that when i you know I had a natural kind of I had the skill set for it already, unbeknownst to me, and when I paired that with an an aggressive learning habit because I've always been an aggressive learner, so I just have this insatiable desire to know for some reason. Uh, the two put together, you know, led me to have great success and be able to climb the ladder uh, very quickly. Uh, the agency I think was an excellent experience. Uh, but, um, before jumping into that, I just want to see if you had uh, any
0: other questions beyond that. Uh, no, I was just listening. If you want to, if you want to talk about the experience of, uh, I guess, getting into specifically into marketing, what was your first day like? And did they, I mean, a lot of, I mean, the background matters a lot, and when somebody sees masters in psychology, it's very attractive uh, phrasing for anybody almost. Um, was there? Uh, how was the learning curve coming from a completely opposite? You went through teaching school and then getting into marketing. What was the learning curve like, and what had, what did you learn, and how did you apply your skills to it?
1: So i say the learning curve applied specifically to the mechanics of it. Uh, mm-hmm. As I mentioned, the skill set I seem to already possess. Mm -hmm. unbeknownst to myself but it was really adopting to the mechanics of it the structure or infrastructure of it you know marketing as 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 in any other discipline has a certain scaffolding around it Mm -hmm. and that's what I needed to familiarize myself with so you can have all the skill in the world but if you don't integrate that into a specific functioning model or then you know it goes off uh, to the side. And so that was where the, really the learning curve came in. You know, I was already adept at working and speaking with people, building relationships and being able to communicate things in such a way that it made the impact that I wanted. Uh, and and by that, I mean an impact that would generate a great outcome for, you know, the end user or the audience itself. And so those skills became uh, very significant in, in the marketing capacity because Ultimately, it's really about understanding people uh, from the position where they're at today, identifying what are their concerns and pain points and what are perhaps some of their desires. And then if it just so happens that your product or service or solution aligns uh, or maps perfectly onto what they need, then it just becomes almost just a sensible, normal conversation. Um, I don't want to downplay it and make it seem like it, it you know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's that elementary, but it can be, you know, I think ultimately we're human beings and um, where, where I see marketers struggle is that they, they see themselves too much as marketers. What do you mean by that? Is there like a clout purchasing chasing or? Yeah, there, I think that they are too attached to their, their title or position. Uh, and perhaps the power and leverage that comes with that, that they're perhaps a little bit seduced by it. and, And really they're seeking to serve their needs as opposed to the user's needs or the audience's needs. Whereas I really humble myself and think, well, I'm really looking out to solve problems for the end user and for the audience. And I think that comes across in my communication, in my exchanges with them. And that's how I'm able to build trust. You know, there's this line that I picked up uh, from the sales world that says, everybody loves to buy, but nobody loves to be sold. And, and we all know the difference between those two. Uh, everyone's looking to buy stuff at all moments of the day. That's not an issue. Uh, the issue is that we do not like it uh, when somebody is very clearly just trying to sell us, right? Uh, and so when I say there are some marketers who are you know, too caught up with being marketers, That's a little bit about what I mean is that they're too focused on, uh, you know, making the sale on, you know, driving the conversion versus, well, I actually just genuinely want to help this other person because I know even if I'm selfish about it, it's still practical to follow that, uh, that path, because if you genuinely connect with them, then you'll generate business beyond that one touch point. You'll, you'll generate a customer for life or at least for long-term.
0: How did you get out? When was the stop with the intern and then uh, getting into a social Chrome marketing agency?
1: Yeah, so initially had a sales job. Again, this happened rather accidentally. (laughs) So it's funny how so many of of the turning points in my life, I feel I've just been accidental or or that or I have some guiding agents that's, you know, pulling the levers behind the scenes. But I had applied for a job that at the time had social media in the title. Uh, this was around two thousand eleven or so, I want to say, and that was an attractive proposition for me because I thought, oh wow, like there are such jobs as social media something, <laughs> and and so I thought, well, let me jump into that, and ended up getting the role. First day on the job, I I, I realized, well, hold on a second, like this job is not actually managing social media, this job is selling social media services, uh, and so. Rather than you know just walk out the door, I thought, well, I'm here, <laughs> I have a job, you know. Let me do the best that I can, and very quickly became a top performer at that company. And uh, myself and a couple of my my colleagues there, who were also top performers, just in our own private discussions, you know, realized, hey, you know what, we're doing so well at this. Why don't we build our own agency where we can effectively, you know, provide similar solutions. We can tailor it our way we obviously have a great deal of experience from being top performers here at this company. You know, perhaps we can generate a little bit more for ourselves and for our lives, You know, by branching out and doing it ourselves. So that's kind of how we, we founded uh, social Chrome. What
0: were the first uh, days like as a business owner? How was the whole, did you guys already have uh, connections built up at network? So it was easy getting clients or was there some sort of like strategy around there when you guys came in? All right, how do we go from zero to actually getting the first sound client? So both. Uh, from the
1: moment that we we started uh, from day one, we already had probably about a dozen clients up, uh, because we started building it out almost as a side project to test it. Uh, and by the way, I never would advise for somebody to just quit their job and jump into a business. Uh, you can start your business uh, while holding a full-time job and grow it up to the point where you have uh, so much demand that it's now safe to transition out of your job and into your business because now you have something to land on you know a lot of people uh, while i admire the belief you know you don't you don't want to you know leave your full-time job and and go out and test the market if, if you already don't have traction or at least you know a substantive customer base and so we we did migrate some clients that we had already and because we'd also um had a pretty nice book of uh, contacts. You know, by the time we founded it, we'd already spoken collectively with probably thousands of business owners around the country. So we had connections. We'd had conversations, and it became easy or easier. It's never easy, but it became easier to to build from there. Day one was filled with a lot of excitement, probably just adrenaline pumping through our veins for like a solid week. <laughs> you know the, the there's very few things i can compare it to to you know to go out on the limb and and to start your own business and to you know try to attack the market and capture business it's it's exciting beyond belief but it also comes with an uh, equal proportion a sense of responsibility and pressure and, and that that's something that a lot of people don't discuss we're we're kind of seduced by the the glitter of starting a business but and, you know, I try to counsel people and say, hey, look, well, are you ready to take on, you know, the pressure? Are you ready? You know, because there are no lifeboats here. Like you are the lifeboat, <laughs> especially if, once you start having employees, then you're an even <laughs> you're even more of a lifeboat because they're looking to you for the solutions. They're looking to you for the support, the guidance, uh, you know, the, the direction. And, and so you need to be
0: comfortable with that. Uh, can you talk about what was what were the challenges like in the beginning? Did you guys start off with just only a few people and then hired on a lot more? What were exactly. the challenges in the beginning? Uh, it means of, in terms of like team alignment and just uh, taking on duties because everybody's, I think, I believe when everybody's like a co-founder, everybody tries to take on a lot of roles and not really sit down and have a conversation. Hey, this is where your strength lands. Maybe you should focus on that point. Uh, what were some of the challenges in the beginning? And then when you started hiring more people, how did that change? So we
1: were able to flush that out, uh, even before we opened our doors. Mm-hmm. While we were all great salespeople. Uh, we certainly had, um, other strengths as well. And so my strength seemed to lie, uh, as, as a marketer, I mm-hmm. felt equally comfortable as a salesperson and as a marketer. Uh, one of my founders or one of my partners was, just far and away just the best salesman of the three and so it just made sense that he would be in charge of sales Uh, that included uh hiring and training and and obviously leading that that effort and then uh we initially actually had uh was three of us who founded it eventually became only two of us but um the other partner he was just good at uh operations so operationally he helped you know keep the lights on you know keep the, the, he, he had set up all kinds of computers and phones for us, and he'd set up all the accounts for us. And so, like I said, we all felt comfortable selling, but it's a lot more than just selling to build out an agency. Uh, so that, that's kind of how we split up the the responsibilities in the beginning.
0: And then when you guys started hiring more people, how did that, I mean, what was the feeling like to just hiring somebody like, wow, we're actually like getting a new person on our team. And what are what are the challenges of actually introducing and integrating the person? It, it was both exciting and a little worrisome because
1: you, of course, you want to grow the company and you want to grow the business. And that inevitably means bringing on uh, more team members. But we we worked so well together. We, we gelled so well together that when you bring somebody new into the equation, it's always a different ingredient. You never really know how it's going to turn out. And so it was exciting from the position of okay, we're growing now. We have enough of a, of a customer base where we have enough, we're generating enough revenue where we can actually afford to hire and it makes sense. That's exciting. But then obviously the dynamic will inevitably change because every person brings in their own ingredients uh, to add to the mix. And hopefully that admixture is, generates a good outcome for everyone. Uh, when was that moment when we finally decided to hire? Well, we had determined several uh, thresholds that we needed to hit first before we could even bring on a single person. And so once we hit those thresholds, then that made it very easy for us to say, okay, now's the time. And then whenever we hit that next threshold, then we realized, okay, now we can bring on a second person, a third person, a fourth person. So we needed to determine all that from the get-go. Uh, it becomes very
0: difficult to try to figure everything out on the fly. Was there a culture change or, um, I mean, it's kind of like an overused word, but I I guess I'm going to describe it as a culture change since you started off with your close friends, buddy. So it's kind of like bros in the office, you get there and you kind of, I mean, quote unquote, shit the, you know, shoot the shit and it's like enjoyable. But then when you get an outsider that you don't maybe know, you're just bringing in for an interview. And um, how did that go through is like meaning of like team culture? Did you guys read books on... Team management, team alignment, or anything like that. Or Was there uh, new education or e-learning's introduced, or anything like that?
1: So I remember that I personally was trying to push for that uh, because my concern was that it was becoming a little bit too much of a bro culture, and you know that became immediately apparent when we hired uh, our first woman, where suddenly everyone was on their best behavior. <laughs> but it was like night and day, right? Because you know we we'd already you know had several months of uh, running a certain way, operating a certain way. And I tried to kind of hedge against that because I knew, well, it's not, we're not just going to hire men here. It's going to become a you know, an insane asylum in here. <laughs> so, You know, I thought, look guys, like, I get it. We're having fun. I don't want to take the fun away. You know, I get it. Everyone feels good here. I don't want to take that away, but at the end of the day, this is a business guys. Like, and we can't, well, it's okay to have fun and while it's okay for there to be some levity, you know, you, you want to remember and keep firmly in your mind why we're here. Uh, You know, we're not here to dick around, we're here to generate business and and hopefully provide some solutions for our customers. Uh, So that needs to be the the, the mindset, I think. Uh, Obviously we're younger, so there's always um, some development uh, to be had, but uh, I remember trying to push for that, and you know coming up against some resistance. by the time we hired our first woman, uh, she was an account manager, then yeah it was it was almost it became a much difficult behavior uh, habit to adopt. Uh, whereas if we were more successful in adopting that uh, sooner, then perhaps it would have been an easier transition for us.
0: How did that uh, come to an end? Uh, is the agency still around? Did you guys just put a hold to it? Because I saw you transition into a bilingual marketing director and it's kind of like interesting, you went from fi- finding uh, a business and then uh, I guess going to work for somebody, it's a little bit of a different shift as well. Yeah, absolutely. So
1: part of the way, part of the reason it closed was due to, well, a couple things. One of them is business related and the other one was more personal. Uh, From the personal end, my partner, and by this time, uh, about three, uh, you know, when when we were in the final days of it, his father passed away suddenly from cancer. And it it really sent him for a tailspin. Uh, He actually went missing for like about a month. You know, I couldn't find him. And, you know, this was also a time when we were putting in something like 70 hours a week or so. And so I think physically I was already, you know, at my pretty close to my breaking point, um, even if my partner would have been there. And when he was gone for that month and suddenly now I'm steering the whole ship, you know, we had probably about nine employees at this point who were all looking at me and going, you know, where's Tony? Where's Tony, right? And I just had no answers for them, right? Well, I don't know. And, you know, energy is such a delicate thing that when you're in the same room together, then you can sense when something is off. You know, so the employees sense, uh, the team could sense that something was amiss. I think that started affecting uh, performance. And we were already had, you know, several issues irrespective of that anyway. And so that led to me having something of a kind of a breakdown, whether it was a mental breakdown or physical. I mean, I, I don't know if I could really separate from the two, but, and, and that, I think, you know, I would say you never want to get to that point where you have a breakdown because a breakdown can com- completely shake you up to your foundations. You know, I remember being so suddenly, for someone who is typically almost fearless to go from that to suddenly, wow, like even minor things are affecting me and making me nervous. You know, you don't want to be in that position. So we, we were kind of forced to close our doors, partly due to my partner's father passing away but partly due to the fact that while we had built this business it was also kind of a house of cards Uh, and what i mean by that is that we were always great our real strength was in generating new business so we never worried about incoming revenue because we knew we could always sell we could always bring a new business where we really struggled was that it was very difficult for us to mean to keep that business for longer than let's say you know, 90 to 120 days. And the reality is you're not really gonna build a successful business uh, if you can't keep your customers. <laughs> yes, there are like you know, a million people out there that may be interested in you, but if you can't keep them, it's only a matter of time. You're building a house of cards and that's what happened to us. From there you're right, I joined Camino Financial at the time it was a venture backed uh, startup. It was founded by two Harvard uh, Business School grads, twin brothers, uh, Sean Salas and Kenny Salas. Great guys, outrageously smart, uh, outrageously dedicated. And I mean, I've, I can't recall too many people I've met who work harder than them. And they were going after, so they're a lending business, they were lending to small businesses. And, you know, I had just come out of my agency where, you know, I, i already spoken to thousands of business owners, and so that I think they found as an was their uh, the biggest value they saw. I said, "Look, if you guys are going after small businesses, I have a book right here of you know over a thousand names that I can call right now." You know, and and I think that became an attractive proposition for them. They they brought me on board as the bilingual marketing director, and then, you know, we we went on a good run. It was interesting because. I'd never been part of a, at least up until that point, of a venture-backed startup. Mm-hmm. The, the pressure is insane and the work uh, load is insane. Um, I think you have to be a bit insane to, uh, to actually thrive in those conditions, uh, you know, because the, there's constant pressure. You're working on, I was a one-man wrecking crew. You know, I was doing all the PR, the social media, the blogging, the email the strategic partnerships, you name it, I had to do it. And while it's good because when you need to stretch is when you're really forced to develop muscle, but you don't wanna, you know, you want your stretches to be within striking distance. Otherwise you'll break. You don't wanna stretch too much as we call that the rack, right? When you're, you know, you're stretched a little bit too much. <laughs> uh, and so that was a valuable experience too.
0: What were the next few years like as, because I know you have uh, were still in the marketing and then I think you started into your own uh, consulting uh, firm or just uh, as a freelancer? So
1: I, I'd been doing consulting uh, since the day that Social Chrome closed. Uh, what I did was that I hand selected the people, the customers that we built the best relationships with, that I'd built the best relationships with personally and I continued to work uh, uh, those accounts uh, through my own personal consulting firm, uh, which is really just me. <laughs> uh, and so I was able to manage the workload because I identified, okay, I can work with five clients, I can work with 10 clients, whatever that magic number was, um, you know, I still had the freedom where I could continue to work that while looking for a full-time opportunity where you know, I can continue to develop also. So I've been doing that probably since those days. Even now, um, I still you know, work with clients. Uh, sometimes I work with budding entrepreneurs who are looking to start agencies or who need help with brand or, or just simply how to sell. You know, those are things that I keep an eye out for. Uh, the years after that, though, were a bit tumultuous, largely because you know, I, I'd been laid off in, from my last two roles and, you know, that's something that you can never really see coming. And of course, it, it kind of sends you back to, um, you know, to square one. But the mindset I have is that, you know, those moments can be just as valuable, uh, if not more valuable than, you know, just consistent uh, success. You know, there's something about consistent success that can put you to sleep, uh, that can lead to conformity that can lead to just a little too much comfort. And when every now and then something comes by, whether of your own doing or whether externally driven that you know puts you on your back seat, then it, it can help you to take a pause, to audit yourself, to see where you're at physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, identify what mistakes were made, identify how you can take that next step forward so that by the time you do take that next step forward, it's it's full of conviction. Mm-hmm. And so, even when I had a step back, I always actually took two steps forward. So anytime I was laid off, I came back and actually was able to negotiate even higher salaries. Uh, so I don't think it was for nothing, and it actually ended up working out better in my case because you know I might have been out of income for a few months, but by the time I was back working again, I had now increased my income uh, substantially, and so. Uh, I, I think that's largely due to the mindset that I adopt.
0: Is that something you cultivate a, like awareness when bad things, like shit times come around? You kind of know from personal experience not to stress out anymore and you're aware of it. You're like, okay, this might get worse, but if I put enough effort and be consistent at it, uh, something good will come out.
1: Yeah, part of it is is belief, but also part of it is experience. And it's really more experience than belief. Uh, because we can you, you can believe but you can kid yourself uh, but when you have experience uh, that's something that you can really hang your hat on uh, i say that as i see your your little white hat over there in the back with the bear is that, are those bears or yeah, yeah grateful dead. <laughs> and so uh, as far as experience uh, this might sound a little strange but on some level i consider myself a professional sufferer and, and what i mean by that is that i've been through so much already that you know, things don't have the same impact that they had. on. Negative things don't have the same impact that they used to have on me. Uh, matter of fact, I just brush them off. It's like water off a duck's back. Uh, if anything, you know, because I've been in more leadership uh, roles, uh, I've made it a point to, when I see that my team, you know, struggling with something, if anything, I want to provide some of that counsel and see like, hey, what's going on? And, and help them understand that. You know, this can be a valuable experience for them if they're open to it. Um, and if we're not open to it, then that's when things end up overwhelming us. And so, you know, being a professional sufferer, I, I take it as really as just uh, bad weather. You know, weather, I don't care how bad it gets, it's going to pass. You know, you can have the stormiest clouds, but soon enough they'll be gone, you know, without a trace. And it can be as simple as that. Um, or it can be as hard as as we, you know, unconsciously choose for it to be. Uh, Nobody is immune uh, to suffering. If you're alive and breathing, you got problems. You know, that doesn't make you original or unique. You know, um, what makes us unique is, you know, what are the solutions that we're able to uncover in those moments, and furthermore, how are we enhanced by going through those situations how are you enhanced by you know going and weathering those storms
0: okay let's get into the most important and that's actually how we connected with psychedelics uh let's talk about the first experience how you got introduced was this before psychology was this after um so wanted to know about all that
1: sure you know i'd never actually been interested in psychedelics um until around well, 2006 was the first time that I tried psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before that, I'd never been interested in psychedelics. I knew of them. I was aware of them. Uh, I was entirely ignorant about them. So I don't think that my ideas about them were were well-shaped at that time. Uh, but as just as a background, uh, probably since around age four, I, I did have... Um, I did consider myself a somewhat of a spiritual seeker. And so that led me to, uh, on the surface of it, yes, I studied psychology because, you know, I I couldn't find any such degree as like mysticism or something or shamanism. (laughs) Had there been one or had I been aware of one, I may have pursued that. But my my personal interest was in, you know, uh, the religious experience, the mystical experience, you know, the the transformative experience, if you will. And that led me to pursue uh, studies and practice in various mystical traditions from around the world. Uh, I, at some point, I'd probably gone over most of the, the important uh, religious texts from around the world, from various cultures, uh, all of that in effort, as I mentioned earlier, to to try and learn who I was. You know, so it was a fascination for those subjects, but largely because they were helping me understand who I was. So that's what kind of fueled my eventual in psychedelics so right around 2006 a friend of mine who uh, i was in the habit of uh, discussing alan watts with if you're familiar with alan watts he's kind of one of my virtual mentors i suppose yeah, <laughs> yep. uh, and you know he and i got into this habit of listening to some of the alan watts recordings uh, around 2005 2006 somehow he came across some psilocybin some magic mushrooms from a, a friend of his i don't even know who and we decided to go off on a day hike. Uh, this was in Santa Cruz, California. And you know, I, I'd had an open mind about it. I remember not being in any way afraid or intimidated by it. If anything, I was excited at the prospect of you know having this interesting experience. Uh, but I certainly didn't know what what was coming. You know, it. I feel I feel like it blew the lid off of my off of my mind matter of fact the the word psychedelic means something very close to that uh psyche uh, suke in the greek is of course uh, what we call mind today and delos the word greek the greek word delos means to open or to make manifest so it's literally something that opens your mind uh we all have a sense of what that could mean in our ordinary everyday life right we say to some oh you just have to have an open mind (laughs) But it's another thing to just organically in your in your depths, in the depths of your being, to like be split open in that way. It can be a rather uh, terrifying experience, um, or it can also be you know uh, something of, of of just staggering beauty. Um, so I had a great experience. They did have elements of religiosity for me. Um, I don't suppose that that's everyone's experience, but because that was, you know, part of my, uh who I was and some of what my interests were, I think that easily lent itself to that. You know, I had wonderful experiences, but I also had uh, terrible experiences, uh, all within the same trip. And so all of my trips have been... Uh, What I always like to say is that every single journey that I've been on uh, with psychedelics has always invo- involved some percentage of just sheer absolute terror. Uh, I'm happy to say that that is usually around no more than 10% of the experience, uh, whereas the rest of the 90% uh, was just, you know, beauty, uh, inspiration, love and joy you know really at the level of divinity almost i mean it's hard to describe really with ordinary words but i do like to emphasize the terror because it we can be so caught up and wrapped up in ourselves that when you are dislodged from that you know it it can be painful Uh, it, it can be painful because you know we're wound too tight we're identified and attached too much with ourselves with our, with our image of ourselves because if we were really ourselves then we you know we i think we'd be a lot happier and and uh, in harmony with ourselves and with others uh, and so that was my first experience i think that it confirmed a lot of what i'd studied uh in religion and mysticism i think it it further enhanced my my belief because now my belief was supported by you know this tremendous experience that i just had having said that uh, and the science of course uh, has proven this time and time again psychedelics are completely non-addictive and if for those of you who are skeptical of that statement i can virtually promise you that if you ever try psychedelics even once you will be in no real hurry at all uh, to try it again. <laughs> uh, you know, even myself, what I consider myself an, an advocate for psychedelics, you know, the last journey I went on was in March of 2019. It's, it's been over a year now. I think I'm good. <laughs> I think I'm going to wait a little while. You know, I, 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 certainly feel no strong compulsion to, to go on a, another journey anytime soon, but I know the day will come, uh, the day will come. And that's a, that's a personal uh, choice that people need to make.
0: How did that, were you at psychology
1: already in school
0: uh, during the first time that you've... Uh...
1: No, so this was during my undergraduate years mm-hmm. uh, at the University of California in Santa Cruz. Uh, that was when I first tried psychedelics. Uh, since then, I, uh, one, of the, one of the more powerful experiences I had with psychedelics was in a, during an ayahuasca ceremony,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, actually here in California. Uh, I'm aware that many people travel to other parts of the world Uh, for those experiences. Uh, I'm sure there are many valuable experiences there, but I can't really speak to them from personal experience. My experience took place in a California desert. Um, I guess just to preserve anonymity, I won't name the place, uh, but uh, in a California desert with a shaman that I met through one of my friends actually very interesting the way it happened i I just moved back from chicago uh, in 2010 after finishing uh graduate school and one of my friends who i studied and practiced zen meditation with he calls me up out of the blue i hadn't even heard from him in like two years calls me up out of the blue and he's like hey alfredo i met a shaman let's go do ayahuasca with him and i was like that's how it goes (laughs) and uh i i kind of jarred me for a second but then right after that I said okay let's do it so it was it was like a, it was a proposition that I'd never had before I was like what okay yeah let's do it I, rather than uh, think too much about it or dwell on it I just instantly just thought you know what what a rare opportunity here uh, this may never come around again I don't know any shamans <laughs> so yeah let's go try it I mean that was uh I think an order, like an order of magnitude greater than, than what I had experienced with psychedelics before. I don't know if it was the context because with the shaman, you know, he he was able along with his team to provide something closer to like a ceremonial setting, Mm -hmm. something closer perhaps to, uh, what is considered a traditional setting, uh, you know, for, perhaps some of the the shamans in South America, Peru or Brazil, wherever they may be. Uh, I I don't know that I can verify like the legitimacy of the practices and and ceremonies that took place, but I can speak to their efficacy uh, because it provided uh, a very powerful uh, experience that I think without the shaman being present and without the team present, I I think it's very possible I, I could have gone off the deep end um so uh, i'll share a little bit about the story if we have time
0: of course yeah, yeah if if you have time that's the most important
1: sure we it was about 40 of us that day um i didn't know everybody
0: there I how did that think- feel beforehand because i've i got introduced to ayahuasca ceremony but I never went but just the aspect of you know and somebody thinks of trips or somewhere experience like hey you just want to be with your friends or a uh, comfortable uh, environment how did that feel when you heard like 40 people you're going to be around 40 people tripping
1: <laughs> yeah i can understand how that may be frustrating or intimidating for a lot of people it it didn't frustrate me in the least i by the time i arrived for the experience i was so utterly possessed with my intention for for doing that that i really didn't pay too much mind to how many people were there or who was there or who wasn't there um there were some preliminary things that we had to take care of before that. Uh, some of that included fasting from any meat products for I believe a week leading up to the ceremony. We also had to secure uh, clothing uh, in the color of white. So any type of white shirt or you know, some white pants or shorts, whatever, but so long as it was in the color of white. And it was also advised that we try to spend some time and identify, you know, what what is my real purpose and intention in doing this? Because they didn't really want anybody who was there just to get high or, you know, because that would contaminate the experience to a degree. Uh, I'm not saying that that's a bad reason. I respect if that's somebody's reason for trying something, but I think that that belongs in another setting and in another context than trying to do something ceremonially um and so i I spent the week leading up to the experience um you know spending a lot of time with what my intention was what i was hoping to get out of it uh the interesting thing about ayahuasca this medicine is that uh, the the intention is very important because you will get what you ask for uh, and oftentimes that can come with a very big surprise (laughs) you know we we think we're ready to hear and learn certain certain things and then we quickly realize oh wait this is why i haven't knocked on this door for so long because there's a big you know dragon at the other end of it and and i still don't have my armor and sword Mm -hmm. and so um i wasn't intimidated by that it was about 40 of us i only knew two other people who were there who was my friend who was the one that invited me, and another one of his friends, who was a mutual friend of mine also. We we sat in a circle. We we hadn't eaten, eaten anything at all that day, other than uh, had some liquid, some water. Evening came, and well, first of all, I met the shaman, and my first impression was that if this guy is the shaman, then I'm the king of France, you know, because this guy, <laughs> you know this guy, you know, I was a little skeptical at that point, because I was like, well, what the hell did I just get into? like this guy is the shaman. you know he looked like you know, you know you wouldn't you wouldn't you know you'd peg him for just you know a common homeless man or something. This guy had bad teeth, you know, bad uh, kind of hygiene in general, and very short man. you know he spoke rather strangely and and I thought, well, whatever, you know there's there's something going on here, and I'm here for the ride, so let's go through it. Uh, I'll go back to that point later on because then I eventually discovered who, how and who he really was. Um, And so anyway, the ceremony arrives. It's about twilight. It's starting to get dark, 40 of us sitting around in a circle. The shaman starts to give some basic instructions. And then, you know, we, I think some pieces of paper were passed around so that we could write down our intention. And that, that was something that was to be private. They were not collected or nothing like that. Nobody else could see them. I think it was a way to just kind of nail down exactly uh, in our minds why we were here, what the purpose of this was, because we're about to jump on this roller coaster, right? And so he starts calling people up one by one to uh, actually take the ayahuasca. Uh, A quick note about that. For me, ayahuasca tastes like a combination of prune juice and just dirt. Uh, You know, I know everyone has their... (laughs) I was like, good God, this is like, it's either prune juice and dirt or... (laughs) Or, or there's something you know odd about the flavor of this what he did was right before receiving and giving you the ayahuasca he looked into your eyes he asked you how are you feeling and and then he took your pulse so the whole time he's looking at you and he's asking you this question he's got his hand on on your pulse and i think he's probably just doing a preliminary you know assessment of making sure, okay, well, this person's calm, they're relaxed. Obviously it makes sense if somebody is perhaps too nervous, maybe it's not the right moment or... And I said, well, I feel feel good, I feel good. Uh, I took my first cup of ayahuasca. Everyone got their first uh, very small cup, went back and sat uh, in the same position they were in in the circle. I would say about 15, 20, 30 minutes passed when I started seeing that the other people in the circle were very visibly affected by them. Um, I, it felt a little bit like some scenes out of Dante's Inferno, because I started to see people visibly, it seemed like they were affected by just horrible emotional turmoil. They were safe, there was no immediate threat in the environment, so I knew it wasn't that. But they just, it seemed like emotionally they were dislodging or kind of, you know, letting out uh, all of this uh, negative emotional energy. And I was like, good God, like that person over there is going through. And then it it very soon became like a chorus of wails, right? You know, you just hear wailing, and I was like, wow, like. That wasn't everyone's experience, but it, there was a moment when I saw that and I was like, Good God, this is like Dante's Inferno here. Like, it's just wailing and lamentations. And, um, but obviously that was as a result of, of the medicine. I'll fast forward a little bit, probably about an hour and a half into having taken the the first cup. I felt nothing, literally. I felt zero. I was sitting there feeling like a fool because I'm, I'm witnessing, you know, what is just like remarkable behavior around me. Uh, and I'm just there like, well, whoop to do, you know, and there's nothing going on. And at some point the shaman stood up and said, if anyone would like uh, a second, um, I guess, hit, (laughs) I'm struggling for a better word. It's not really a hit, but, but if anyone would like a second dose, I guess is a better word, you know, now would be a good time. Well, I mean, I almost jumped off the floor because I was like, oh, I mean, I, need, I gotta get something like I'm here. <laughs> and then, so similar to before he looked at me in the eyes and he grabbed my wrist and was taking my pulse. And he said, how do you feel? And I said, look, I don't feel anything. You know, I know I took, you know, some earlier but I don't feel anything. I feel exactly the same. And he looked at me rather curiously. Um, And then he said, okay, he said, I'm going to give you a a special dose. Now I thought initially, okay, this guy's going to give me like half a gallon of this stuff. Well, he actually gave me even less than he gave me the first time. And I was a little skeptical because I thought, well, I don't know. I don't see what this is going to do. You know, it's even less than last time. Whatever. I took it. I went back to my place in the circle and not five minutes later, I was in a completely different world. And it the transition is I, I usually compare it to a dream where for those of for those of in the audience who have dreams, you know that there are these transitions that you're never aware of. What I mean is you could be in the dream, you could be at home with your family. And before you know it, you're in some jungle or you're in somewhere else with an entirely different set of people doing entirely different things. And you don't even know where that transition was or how it happened. It all just seems to bleed together. Well, that's how it happened. I remember just sitting there in the circle and thinking, okay, this is where I'm at. This is who I am. So all of a sudden being entirely, it seemed like somewhere else, experiencing different things. And really being able to capture how that had happened or why that had happened. And, you know, it's like a roller coaster. Once, once it takes off, you're, you're along for the ride, you know, whether you want to or not. It, it was absolutely terrifying in the beginning. I remember at some point I even tried to steal my friend's car. Uh, so oh. <laughs> that's how scared I was. I was like, oh, there's my friend's car. Let me break into it and drive home, <laughs> which would have been an outrageously bad idea Uh, Because I was in no condition even to walk. It's funny, because when I stood up to walk, I seemed to have lost kind of all motor skills. I remember kind of stumbling around like Frankenstein and almost as if I forgot how to walk. I was like, so weird, I can't even walk. Um, I remember I called my parents because I was convinced that I was dying and that I was going to die. And I thought, well, like many other people, you want to call your loved ones and... You know, so I called my parents. They actually picked up. Um, so I feel bad about that now because I must have just completely, like, horrified them. You know, well, what's going on? Well, what's happened? Well, I'm in the desert, right? <laughs> I'm with a bunch of people I don't know, and I took some drug, and, you know, and they're like, what? You know, well, where are you? Well, I don't know. <laughs> um, I laugh about it now, but they're still, to this day, not laughing about it. Um, <laughs> And, um, at some point, one of the the shaman's uh, helpers, there uh, was this young lady named Valerie, I want to say, and she found me kind of just stumbling around. And I don't know why, because I knew that this was, okay, this is Valerie. this is this person. But when I saw her in that moment, for me, it was like almost like this spirit figure, this this very feminine, spirit loving nurturing figure just showed up and she was able to basically to calm me down um i don't remember exactly what she was saying to me but everything that she said seemed to express or communicate just a profound love uh, and safety and nurturing and that was able to kind of you know take the edge off more or less stabilized me. I remember she massaged my shoulders a little bit and it just felt, you know, it it felt really good. It calmed me down. From that moment forward, for the remainder of the experience, I experienced just sublime joy and ecstasy. Um, I'm very grateful for both the shaman and, and her in particular because I mentioned earlier that when I first met the shaman, I thought, well, if this guy's a shaman, then you know I'm the Emperor. You know, there's no way this guy's a shaman, but once you were uh, under the influence of the ayahuasca, everybody transformed. The people who you thought were there with you were actually somebody different. The shaman that you had just met moments ago actually turns out to be somebody very different. Under this influence, it was like he was this kind of king. It was like he was this uh, in this other world, uh, so to speak. It was like he was this prominent, powerful figure, whereas at the level of ordinary, everyday reality of ordinary, everyday consciousness, as I mentioned, you you know, you might have mistaken mistook him as just a common uh, homeless person. You know, nothing necessarily special about him necessarily. Uh, but again, under the ayahuasca this person seemed to transform and they seemed to have a great deal of power and wisdom. And you could sense it. it was something that emanated from them. You know, he began to, you know, chant various songs, which,
0: um, or whatever they're called. Right? Ikaros,
1: yeah. And again, I, w- I want to make the point that from the point of view of ordinary everyday reality, you hear these chants or these songs, these whistling noises and you think fuck is the point of that? You know I don't care. it's just the whistling, it's just a song and and it's true at that level, uh, but under the influence, these things took on a life of their own, and they actually seemed to transmit a kind of a salutary a kind of healing and curative message. It was almost like downloading information into yourself uh you know the information was being downloaded from these songs, from these chants, the whistling and I remember having the sense that I could control my environment however I wished. Uh, I remember speaking aloud at one point and saying, what time is the sun coming out? Because we did this at night. And somebody turned and said to me, well, what time would you want it to come up?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: and I, I immediately understood, uh, again, from the point of view of ordinary everyday reality, that's incoherent. It's like, oh, that's nonsense. What do you mean, what, what time do I want it to come up? It comes up at this time. We all know that. But for, under the, this influence, uh, within this particular state of consciousness, I immediately captured what he was trying to communicate, which was that it was actually I who was fashioning and creating my experience as I'm having it. And that if I so desired, I could actually make the sun come up right now. Uh, I tested this. At one point, I uh, took a finger and pointed it up at the stars, and I realized I could move them around. I could pick a star and move it you know, elsewhere uh, in space and arrange them in ways that however I wanted to. Obviously, we don't seem to have that capacity uh, under ordinary everyday uh, consciousness, but it, it's a power. It's an ability that, that I seem to wield, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one. Uh, while under this influence. Uh, remarkable experience. It really shook me up uh, to my core in both a good way and a bad way. And as I mentioned, it only added further conviction uh, and experience to, to what already were some of my beliefs.
0: How was it after? Because I know that um, I, I've been studying and I've been kind of, I guess, naturally attracted to people who talk about non-duality. And one of the interesting points was made by a speaker is he kind of compared non-duality and psychedelics. And so psychedelics can give you that momentum push for a few months. But after that, you'll go, you're going to go back to your old habits and old ways. And then he compared it to non-duality of like thinking this way. It's just coming back, kind of eliminating who's me, who's you, like who's the I and just getting deeper, deeper, deeper into levels. But um what were the struggles after and uh, is was there something that you seen completely new of yourself after the experience?
1: Yeah, so immediately afterwards, I can confidently say that I was an entirely different person um, or, or perhaps it's more, it's better to say that I was enhanced uh, exponentially. Mm-hmm. I would say. And this became very clear and evident to everyone around me. They they thought something magical had happened to me, or like they're like, good God! Like, suddenly this person is possessed with wild confidence, you know, complete belief. It, it's like you're making magic happen with every movement, uh, with every word. Uh, that was my experience for about a couple of weeks after the, the the ayahuasca ceremony. I thought I could do no wrong. I was generating great outcomes everywhere I went. All of my exchanges and encounters with people were positive and uh, very, very good. And so I thought, good God, like I was ready to throw myself on the floor and just with, with gratitude and just thinking, now I've made it. <laughs> it. <laughs> I'm here. Right, I did it. <laughs> um, but as you correctly mentioned, that sensation does wear off. Uh, that's still- yeah, what do they call the afterglow or whatever? Exactly, the afterglow. Uh, that's still the medicine operating inside you and unbeknownst to you because you're no longer having the visuals or the hallucinations or the experiences of non-ordinary reality you think okay i I got it now it's me now it's it's in me Uh, but it does wear off and it's gradual it's gradual over the course of like one to five days from the moment when it starts it's you know it took me about five days when i had effectively reverted back to ordinary everyday Alfredo, which was a colossal disappointment in a way, because you know, it's like having superpowers and then suddenly being stripped of them. It's like, oh, wait, now it's just back to me. Um, so that was kind of a disappointing, but of course, the lesson there was that now you have the experience of what's possible, you know, and so now you have a real target to aim for. Whereas before, it might be nebulous and, you know, oh, well, I'm seeking awareness or enlightenment or these vague notions, right? Now you have firm experience, uh, something to put your feet on, and that makes it a tangible goal to work towards. Now, it is true that you can work with the medicine, uh, as in ayahuasca or psilocybin or, you know, uh, other options but you know i'm a big fan of of an idea from alan watts where he says uh, in reference to psychedelics is you know once you get the message you hang up the phone
0: oh yeah he talked about the ashtray and making everybody
1: see god there too right. <laughs> and so i think that psychedelics do have an important and potentially transformative message for us um but I never advocate for them as being the solution to, yep. to really to almost any problem. They they can point you in the direction of a solution. They can show you that a solution truly does exist uh, where you feel it not only see it, but you feel it and then becomes a part of you for a second or for a moment. But after that, it remains for you uh, to test your sincerity and see if, well, is this truly something that you were looking to pursue, which is to, you know, have an encounter with yourself, to have a, a confrontation with your soul, to borrow a, a term from you. You know, and because I, that was my chief interest to begin with, that was what led me to psychedelics to begin with. You know, it, it became uh, a lot easier afterwards to, to redouble my, my, uh, desire to go along this path and so it doesn't make it necessarily any easier because you still have to wade through and 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 navigate through you know sometimes some pretty stiff weeds but uh ultimately that's that's what led me to psychedelics to begin with as i mentioned you know i wanted to heal myself
0: how did that translate to your work after that experience and in terms of were you were you already talking about psychedelics before? Were you an advocate, kind of maybe a little bit behind the doors or were you openly discussing, especially on LinkedIn? I mean, in 2016, I joined LinkedIn just for the shits of it. And I'm like, ah, oh, okay, whatever. And four years later, when I look at people with farms selling tons of hemp on LinkedIn statuses, <laughs> you know, it made me rethink. I'm like, wow, actually like, cool people. You can talk about psychedelics. No one really cares. Only the people that are interested in you care.
1: Definitely. So I was more of an underground advocate uh, with select, you know, and in private company. Then I felt comfortable discussing, you know, some of these experiences, discussing my background with them, my my uh, experience with them. But it's not anything that I'd ever publicize, largely because in some cases it's almost professional suicide, right? Depending on the on the context you're operating in. And so it was. I never even had the temptation to publicize it in any way. I felt like I, you know, had these powerful experiences. I knew that it was not for everybody. I knew that many people would be extremely resistant to such an experience. Uh, you know, you put me in front of the average person to discuss this, they'll they'll think I'm a madman, you know. And, and I can understand why, because from the operating system that they're uh, experiencing the world, you know, these things are received as madness and perhaps in a way it is a kind of madness uh from the point of view of our ordinary everyday thinking so but when i started to see the landscape changing uh when i started to see that politically and socially there was more of an opportunity to uh, not only discuss these things but to you know share experiences with with a broader audience then i think that encouraged me to to speak up to uh, and to share some of these ideas and experiences. I know, first of all, that, you know, many people will brand me as, you know, as like I said, as a madman, and that's okay, my message is not for them. Um, but I, I'm more focused on the people for whom, you know, my message hits home, you know, because I, I believe that, again, with somebody has an open heart, you know, these substances, these experiences, you know, can generate a remarkable outcome in your life uh, that can be curative
0: what are you working on currently right now uh i know you're a self-employed uh maybe you've shifted towards psychedelic companies as well because i've in the last week i think because of you my algorithms and <laughs> linkedin changed and i saw i'm going to interview a few psychotherapists that are specifically uh working with uh i think psilocybin and the other ones with ketamine so it's just interesting to me how I mean, me personally, I think I was running away from, and when I was 17, I was already talking about psychedelics, marijuana, like changing the world. I was kind of like an anarchist just because of, I think, when moving here from Europe, uh, I got picked on by, in the first week, by every single race. And I was like, this the skin color doesn't matter anymore to me. So I started skateboarding. And I think just because of that rebellious community, I was, my whole goal was like, hey, I want to skate, do my... A media company and just experience the world and I think early on that was a big impact for me where I was Talking about it in high school and I think a lot of people looked at me as I was crazy I mean I was still young and in high school You're more susceptible to alcohol and you know It's cool to drink a little bit more when you talk about psychedelics or anything. You're completely off You're completely off um, And I feel like the last few years for me has been like naturally since something I've been running away people show up like you just pop up on comments and I'm like, you see, it's just naturally coming here together. So I was wondering if you're shifting towards that community as well, maybe working together and uh, just give me a little bit of update of what you're doing what projects you're working on and where can people find you?
1: Yeah. So, you know, just because of the whole uh, global situation with, with the virus, um i won't mention it by name because i think by naming things we add more power to them and i don't want to add more power to that so um you know this this virus going around uh it, it, i was laid off in february from uh what was my full-time role at that time since then you know i have done some freelance work uh, with clients and all that but uh it made me think about okay well the world is changing I have these skill sets, I have this background, and I don't want to come out of this the same person. You know, how can I there's an opportunity for me to like reinvent myself. And well, what are my core interests and passions? And then I somehow I kept circling back to psychedelics, uh, which really is just one ingredient of a broader interest, which is self-exploration, you know, psychology, healing. Uh, you know, these type of things. I don't want to put the emphasis on psychedelics. Uh, it's just one of the ingredients in the conversation. And then I thought, well, you know, I'm already uh, in contact with a few people uh, in the psychedelic space. And I decided it's something I wanted to explore more. It's growing. Um, it's, it's still kind of at a seed stage almost, but, you know, I, I think within the next you know five to 10 years, it could be what, uh marijuana and the cannabis industry is today already where it seemed out of nowhere you know these dispensaries popped up uh you know i'm not sure to what degree they're regulated yet um, but i'm sure the regulation will come nonetheless i thought well there's an opportunity here for healing i thought mental health as for too long as far as i know for decades there's been no real innovation in mental health you think of the innovation that's taken place over the last few decades uh, across you know, various sectors, is remarkable. It's, it's, of an, it's an order of magnitude that's exponential. Mm-hmm. Yet in areas like mental health, there's been virtually zero innovation. Uh, that's a problem. Uh, that's a problem because it's not something that we can gloss over or neglect. It's, it's a silent killer that affects people uh, all over the globe uh, in sundry different ways. And it's invisible. You know, it's it's very easy to see. Oh, my foot hurts. You know, let me go to a podiatrist. Or you know, my arm hurts. As I said, the the body is always immediately verifiable. But when you're hurting in your soul, when you're hurting in your mind and your emotions, who do you really go to for that? You know, it's a code. <laughs> yeah. And so, that's that's my broader interest is in you know being a part of an effort to to provide, you know, some of these, uh, healing modalities, uh, for the people that need them and for the people that, that don't, well, I mean, that's great. Congratulations for them. More power to them. God bless them. But, you know, I think my focus has become now,
0: you know, the people who are uh, suffering in silence. What would be the last message, uh, for the people in the audience watching? What would be something profound that you would give?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how profound I can make it, but I would say that uh, it's important to value questions more than to value answers uh, and really questions that relate to yourself, uh, not necessarily to the environment. I would say before you go out and try to affect change in the world, to really start with yourself, to really uh, take responsibility and ownership over yourself, over this journey that you're on in your life. Um, know that you have tremendous value to add to the world, but not until you've healed yourself. And so you feel like if you're struggling with something, like if you're held back by something, you know you're capable of so much more, but for X reason, you've not been able to realize it. Understand that there may be something uh, amiss uh, in the machinery. The machinery, I mean, it could be your body, it could be your emotions, it could be your mind. There is help out there. Uh, You are part of a very strong army. There's many people who are in this, uh, you know, for many years we've been operating kind of underground and so that's why there's not much visibility, but you know, I would say that who we think we are is is not anywhere near what the truth is. We need to spend a lot more time trying to ide- uh, really figure out and have a sense and feeling for who we are uh, for real, not who we think we are, not what our parents or what our society wants us to be, uh, not what all the screaming uh, heads say. but who are we within our own sacred sanctum, which is within ourselves. And then to have the courage to to live from that place because that's what people really admire. Uh, People really admire others when you can see that they're, they're living from a genuine
0: place in themselves. Where can people find you perhaps even for business inquiries or even having you on the podcast?
1: Yeah, I felt bad about this because I've had so many websites over the years uh, and For X reasons, I've shut them down, largely because when I seek to reinvent, I try to kind of burn uh, the past or eliminate the past so that I can start fresh. I don't have a website where people can follow me, but people can follow me uh, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Right now, it's probably the place that I'm most active on anyway. I, I did have a lot of social channels years ago, but I've slowly tried to kind of not be so present on social media, partly because it's addictive and partly because I, I didn't feel like I was getting uh, enough value out of it, but I am on LinkedIn quite a bit. I've, I'm, I will continue to be on LinkedIn because I've met some uh, wonderful people there. I think that's where I've been able to broadcast uh, some of these messages with the most success. Uh, I want to say that that link to my page would be linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash a Lopez consulting.
0: Alfredo Lopez Consulting. We'll put the link down for sure. Okay, excellent. Cool, Alfredo, appreciate it. It was supposed to be an hour, it was a little bit over two hours, so I appreciate your time. I don't know if you had something to do, but I could just go on and on with conversations and uh, hopefully I'll have you back on soon and uh, to check in what you're doing and uh, have another long conversation because there's a lot of things that uh, I wanted to discuss about, but time is uh, limited.
1: Yeah, I mean, before closing, I definitely want to make it a point to thank you, Paulius. Uh, you know, I want you to know that the work you're doing is is extremely valuable, perhaps beyond what you're aware of, you know, because oftentimes we don't see the validation immediately. But, you know, this, this conversation alone for me is proof that there's a tide change, there's a sea change. I think you can be an instrumental part of that. You know, thank you for seeing something in me that made you invite me. I think it's important that people not only have these conversations, but listen to these in the hopes that they feel more emboldened and encouraged to, to take a step forward, to, you know, to really have an affirmation towards life and themselves. You know, I, I can see you're a young guy. You know, you remind me in some ways of myself uh, when I was a little bit younger, you know, you, you got, you got everything, man. You got all that it takes. You know, I wish you the best. Definitely. Let's stay connected. Uh, and thanks again.